this watchroom. The medium is the message. Proof is approved. What kind of proof? It's approved. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy. You know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. Today we're going to be talking about stalking. And before we dive in, I just want to express our gratitude to Julie Lalonde. She is a Canadian women, women's rights advocate and educator. We were inspired by her work, um, and particularly her book called Resilience is Futile, which is all about her story and is on my reading list for after the bar exam. Totally. Well, while we are studying for the bar exam, this has been a very, ref- I guess I can't say refreshing study break, but it has been a very interesting one. Very interesting. So Liv, what is stalking? (laughs) We're going to start with the same question we always start with, aren't we? Yeah. So I think that the problem with stalking is that there's not a good universal definition. And there's a lot of norms that have been accepted as stalking, but I think that the general population's awareness of the behaviors that constitute stalking are still insufficient to properly deal with the problem. So the definition that I've gone with, I always have to give a preamble to my definition, don't I? But this definition is from Moulin, who's an academic. It says that stalking is a constellation of behaviors involving repeated and persistent attempts to impose on another person unwanted communication and or contact while instilling fear and apprehension in the victim. Thoughts? That's about what I have. Yeah. I have, I think this is more of a legal definition. Repeated and unwanted attention causing the victim to fear for their personal safety or for the safety of someone they know. I think it's all encompassing. We'll we'll talk about, there's so many different kinds of stalking. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the one that we're particularly, I won't speak for you, but I think I'm particularly interested in is um, intimate partner stalking or certainly the kind of stalking that is overwhelmingly the most common kind of stalking, which is usually a man stalking a woman that he knows. Mm-hmm. And I think that, we're, we'll get into this later, but I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions around stalking, isn't it? That that in some way it can be random and we should be fearful of the random stranger who might stalk us when in reality that's just not the case. The data just doesn't support that. Uh, opinion at all and of course that opinion and that viewpoint has been perpetuated by uh, the media and we'll we'll get into all of that yeah we'll get into who is stalked uh, who stalks Um, most of our data is coming from the 2014 general social survey in canadian safety which is a report commissioned by the federal government who we'll talk about why don't we talk first about who is overwhelmingly stalked surprise it's women (laughs) You know, it comes to no surprise that obviously the majority of the people who who are stalked are women, but even more so, the majority of stalkers are men. So even when, you know, it it may be a man who's being stalked, he's probably being stalked by another man, you know? Um, And and to me, that's really interesting that it seems to be a very gendered crime. 
Although I will just give the quick caveat that in this survey, which is collected between 2009 and 2014, that's the most recent data we were able to find, the Canadian data we were able to find for this podcast. They will say that uh, female stalkers are on the rise. Um, they're making a come up. But that is certainly correct that it's overwhelmingly, stalkers are overwhelmingly men and overwhelmingly their victims are women. Although if men are stalked, they are usually stalked by men. Something I find really interesting um, is that victims of stalking are overwhelmingly young. Mm, I, so did I. I was kind of surprised by that, actually. Victims tend to be, 48% of victims are between 15 and 34. I also found that one third of stalking victims are women specifically yeah. between 15 and 34. So the victims of stalking are, are likely to be young women. Do What do you think could be a reason? Yeah, that we overwhelmingly sexualize young women and that... I guess past 34, you're not desirable enough to be stalked. I don't know. It's just an interesting open question as to why mm. that's the case. We obviously don't have any answers. Other than women, let's talk about who's overwhelmingly the victim of stalking. Racialized people are uh, overrepresented as victims of stalking, especially Indigenous women, are much more likely to be stalked than white women. Interestingly, I also found that people who have a history of homelessness are more likely to be victims of stalking. Mm. When it comes to being stalked, the prevalence is more than three times higher. If you have a history, I would say, of uh, being street involved and those who have never been street involved. Shall we move on to the types of perpetrators of these crimes? Sure. Tell us about who stalks. Anyone can stalk, of course. Obviously, a lot of the time that happens to be uh, an ex-partner, but... That's not to say that it can't also be an acquaintance, a coworker, someone, someone in your life who you know, even a friend. 49% of victims were shocked by someone they knew who wasn't an intimate partner, but you know, almost half or by somebody else they knew. And current or former intimate partners were identified as 21% of the perpetrators. So that's not, I wonder how that would break down on gendered lines. I wonder if women are more likely to be shocked by intimate partners. Hmm. In a statistics, a statistics Canada survey conducted in 2011 found that approximately 75% of women who were stalked by an estranged spouse are physically and sexually assaulted at the same time by, or sorry, by the same person. And that was also supported um, by the, the 2014 data, which suggested that uh, of the 2 million people who reported that they were being stalked, about 300,000 experienced physical attacks. That leads us nicely into the links between other crimes. Stalking is often accompanied by other crimes, including threats of violence and physical violence. And police report that when criminal harassment is reported, it's usually accompanied by other crimes uh, like threats of violence and actual physical violence. Canadian research has also linked stalking to a higher overall risk of sexual assault, especially women who are stalked. If they've been stalked in the preceding, who women who have been stalked in the preceding year self-report sexual assault eight times higher than those who didn't appearance didn't experience stalking. So it seems to be that criminal harassment, um, which is we'll talk about this, but this is kind of how you prosecute stalking uh, in, in criminal justice, tends to go with other crimes. And we're going to kind of talk about how a little bit how the law has developed that way and um, how we've kind of had to carve out specific code provisions for stalking and, and how it's a little bit, it, it kind of can seep into other areas. 
So even outside of physical violence and physical harm, the psychological harm that stalking can cause is is pretty significant um, and can have long lasting effects uh, on victims. It's not just that it's often a precursor to, to physical violence, which it certainly is, and that it's a serious crime because it's a warning that serious crimes will follow, but also because in and of itself, the damage it does to the victim is so significant and the terror that people feel when they're being stalked can have a really significant and lasting impact on them. You may not know that Julie Lalonde was stalked for uh, 10, 10, 10 to 11 years between the age of 20 and 30. And, you know, she says that those years are supposed to be formative years in your life that you develop and grow. And yet she was focused on this, on this perpetrator and these constant attacks. And she was constantly worrying about what when he was gonna contact her next and readjusting her behavior online and in public it, just in case he was watching, right? So it, those, those norms that, that you kind of build for yourself, this new normal that you have to adapt uh, to deal with the situation, certainly no doubt will continue on long past it ends, if it ever ends. Should we move on to talk about the law? So the one caveat that I do want to get into before we talk about the law is that according to Stats Canada, only 40% of victims report to the police. And of these cases that are reported, only about a quarter actually receive a court order or, or some kind of legal protection. And these orders were violated 41% of the time. And so I, I think that we just need to put a big caveat on, on saying that, you know, going to the police, seeking legal action isn't the key to success. And it doesn't always provide the protection that you, that it, that you need. Certainly. We'll talk about the legal mechanisms that are available both through criminal and civil law, with, of course, another caveat that this is not legal advice and any processes we refer to are meant to be purely informational, not intended to be relied upon. So I did a little bit of digging and the oldest stalking case, what I would call a stalking case I found was from 1704. And it's called Dennis and Lane. The defendant, Mr. Lane, was a doctor and a quote unquote former suitor of Miss Dennis, the plaintiff. He entered her house, was trying to get up to her room, followed her and assaulted her, I mean, 18th century bodyguard, as he seems to be described. The other oldest one I found was called, was Regina and, and Dunn from 1840, where the defendant, who was a lawyer, <laughs> followed around a young woman, sent her letters, watched her, quote unquote, cause disturbances and tried to accost her on the street. Both these cases were essentially plaintiffs that were trying to get what would now be called a peace bond. At the time of both these English cases, the stalking itself could not be prosecuted as a civil tort claim or um, as a, the stalking itself was not a criminal code provision. Um, what they really had to rely on was other crimes or torts like trespass or assault, like in for Denison Lane, um, because he assaulted her bodyguard and he entered her house, he was trespassing on her property. But like stalking itself was not criminalized. So that this kind of process um, in these really old cases is actually still alive or has survived as the peace bond process. And a peace bond is a kind of protection order made by the court. And you can get a peace bond where you can show the defendant appears likely to commit a criminal offense, but there are no reasonable grounds to believe that an offense has actually been committed. 
And what the court will do is the order will impose conditions on the defendant, maybe require them to pay money if they violate the peace bond. And they can, and actually breach the condition of the peace bond is a crime itself that can have a, ma a maximum sentence of four years imprisonment. So peace bonds is, can be used uh, by people who are being stalked if they are fear for their safety. And can I also just add too that the peace, a peace bond can be enforced by the police. If mm -hmm. there's a breach of the peace bond, you can call the police you know, and ask them to help you deal with it. Just to say, which is distinct from the process that we'll talk about later with a civil, with a civil remedy of a restraining order. But if you've already been a victim of stalking, you can also look to the crime of criminal harassment, which is a, a criminal code offense. Do you want to tell us a little bit about criminal harassment? At the time that criminal harassment became a codified offense, there were other offenses, like you said, assault, trespass, and things like that that did provide some similar uh, similar protections that crim the criminal harassment provision does provide. That victims of criminal harassment would have to use those to get any kind of remedy in the criminal justice system. Exactly. This legislation w received a lot of criticism and the biggest reason was because this moral panic was in the media and so the legislation was really rushed through. They didn't spend a lot of time in the beginning stages talking with women's rights groups. And so at the time that this legislation came out, uh, Rosemary Karensway, uh, who is a law professor and lawyer, said, I don't think that this is going to be effective for women because it wasn't designed by women. It wasn't like women were consulted and and all these things. And so unfortunately it seems like a lot of her predictions have come true do you have any insight on why criminal harassment as a code provision is ineffective to deal with stalking or other than like the star stalking that it was enacted to combat after in the 80s and 90s that there were four big studies done after the legislation was enacted uh, to see how the legislation was doing and none of those studies talked about flaws with the legislation really the studies mainly focused on the problems with enforcement of the legislation how much do you think that problem of enforcement is to do with like misogyny and implicit bias about bias against women do you think like that's an element i think it's a huge part right because when you talk about a piece of legislation that was pushed forward by honestly a, a largely a group of men it's implicitly going to hold all of their biases, and so those biases are only going to get reinforced by the people who are enforcing it, right? I, I think that there was criticism at the time that the legislation didn't come with an education package for the people who would then be enforcing it. Right. And I think that certainly in the studies about the legislation after it was enacted, that's the prominent narrative is people who just are, seem to be lacking sufficient training. You know, it's it's crown prosecutors who are not pursuing charges, who are not spending enough time with the victims, who don't understand the situation that they're in. And, you know, in Julie Lalonde's story, she talks about that, how she showed she was, um, and, and, we, and you can get into this a little bit more, but that when you have a peace bond, the court gives you 10 days notice. And so her perpetrator 
knew that he had to go to court and he terrorized her for those 10 days up until court and then he picked her up from her house and held her under duress and said if you don't tell the judge that we're not that this isn't happening that you don't want to pursue this then you know there's going to be some problems and so and and the judge and she did she showed up in front of the judge and And the judge reprimanded her too yeah the judge scolded her scolded her and said you know you wasted the court's time and the fact that you know the judge didn't under see that she was under duress and that the whole legal system didn't see that the fact that he showed up that they showed up together wasn't them colluding it meant that there was some serious duress there and and the fact that the legal system couldn't see that really highlights to me one of the biggest issues with enforcement and honestly the legal system at large it it reminds me of a lot of other crimes against women especially crimes that happen um that are that are like overwhelmingly perpetrated by male part by male partners to their female partners is that a lot of what happens happens in a room of two people alone like sexual assault or like domestic violence like in terms of stalking if you're being stalked by an ex like it's it's very possible that nobody else in your life would know or notice if you don't even necessarily have people who can vouch for you because you didn't tell them at the time or or, or whatever the case may be. And so it just further problematizes this idea that you have to have evidence. And, and that makes proof in a legal, to a legal standard to be almost impossible in a lot of cases. And if this is a purely legal <laughs> podcast, I would want to dive into the case law under criminal harassment about the fact that you have to prove that you reasonably fear for your safety or someone known to you. So right, we should talk about like what the code actually says for criminal harassment, which is no person shall without lawful authority and knowing that another person is harassed or recklessly as to whether the other person is harassed, engage in conduct referred to in subsection two, which we'll read after, that causes the other person reasonably in all the circumstances to fear for their safety or the safety of anyone known to them. So the prohibited conduct in section two is Repeatedly following from place to place, the other person or anyone known to them, repeatedly communicating with, indirectly or directly, the other person or anyone known to them, the setting or watching the dwelling house or place where the other person or other person known to them resides, works, carries on business, or happens to be, or engaging in threatening conduct directed at the person or any member of their family. So the code provides that you have to knowingly or recklessly engage in one of these things. So following, communicating with, watching their house, threatening them, that causes the other person to fear for their safety or the safety of anyone known to them. So you have to prove that you fear for your safety. And I would be really interested to see in the case law, if this were a purely legal podcast, what is defined, how fear for their safety is defined. Because victims of stalking who didn't experience physical violence which many of them do but if you don't experience physical violence like the stalking itself is demeaning and humiliating which maybe the tort gets at better which we're going to talk about but like maybe you don't maybe you do maybe you don't think that they're going to hurt you but there's something demeaning and humiliating about just being followed in itself um and i wonder what like fear for your safety what that standard would actually be because like just being followed and watched by somebody without your consent it's terrible. <laughs> like, do you have to fear physical harm? Do you have to fear, like, in order for this to be um, prosecutable? I don't know. It's an interesting question, certainly, because 
it appears to be an objective test. And so what a reasonable man who's 40 and who's a judge would say is is stalking and what what makes him fear for his life is certainly going to be different than a 20-year-old woman. Let's do a really quick tangent of the reasonable person. So you, you see this in, uh, this is for the non-legal people. Um, if you're a legal person, you can skip 30 seconds ahead. But in law, the standard of the reasonable person is used all the time as a standard for conduct. So like in, in negligence law, the standard is of care, like the, the care, the standard you have to meet is a standard of the reasonable person. Um, in terms of like creating standards of what we call objectivity, the court uses the phrase reasonable all the time. So in this provision, reasonably causes someone to fear for their safety means it's, it's supposed to be objective. What would the reasonable person believe? Would the reasonable person believe their safety was at risk? Which means that you're looking at it in a quote unquote objective way. What is quote unquote reasonable in the circumstances and not a subjective test. And a subjective test is the opposite is does this person believe that their safety is in danger? Based on their own personal experience. So it, it, it does raise some questions and it does also beg the question, should this be a subjective test? Should, is this what you know, women's rights groups should be advocating for? I don't know the answer, but it's certainly an interesting question. Um, but we didn't want to get too legal, but we did. So let's talk about civil law. So for the non-legal people, very, very quickly, by civil law, we mean like the civil process. So when you take a, undergo a civil process, you probably are looking for a remedy and damages, probably looking for money as opposed to the criminal justice process. So let's talk about civil remedies. We'll talk about um, like actual torts, which I would kind of analogize to the criminal code provision. And we'll talk about restraining orders, which I would almost analogize to a peace bond. Is that fair, Liv? Yeah, it's basically the civil version of a peace bond. So a restraining order is a family law order, which means it can only be ordered by the family court in Ontario. The main difference between a peace bond and a restraining order is that for a restraining order, you have to be in, you know, quote unquote, a family relationship with the person you're seeking a restraining order against. So that means uh, in law that you have to be, have been married or be currently married to that person. You have to have children with that person or you have to have lived with them for any period of time. It has to be one of those three. Whereas for a peace bond, you can get it against anyone. Like you can get it against a colleague, for example. Similar to a peace bond, you have to show that you have reasonable grounds to fear for your safety or the safety of a child in your custody. And like a peace bond, it's usually a temporary order, although permanent restraining orders are possible, um, but, but quite rare. And again, if you're thinking of seeking any of these remedies, you should speak to a lawyer or reach out to your local community legal clinic. However, because it's a civil remedy, it can't be enforced by police. Uh, you have to go to court in, in order for it to be enforced. And so if you have someone who breaks it, literally you have to go back in front of a judge, which takes time. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very skeptical about how a restraining order in terms of stalking can be very effective unless you're dealing with someone who respects authority a lot and will be frightened by a restraining order. Or you're uh, in the middle of a family court proceeding. That's pretty... That's true. That's true. Let's move on to talk about uh, torts and tort law. 
So in 2012, it's really interesting. Tort law is like, tort law is like really old. <laughs> like a lot of the torts have been around for a really long time and they evolve and like tort law comes before the court and the Supreme Court all the time. But like it, its foundations are really, really old in the common law. But in 2012, the court recognized, uh, the court of, Ontario Court of Appeal, I should say, recognized a new tort called intrusion upon seclusion, which is fun to say, um, which is really an invasion of privacy tort. And you'll hear people call it invasion of privacy, but they mean the tort is, the official name of the tort is intrusion upon seclusion. This case was called Jones and Sy. The purpose of this tort was to address invasions of privacy. And that's not to say that certain privacy invasions haven't been recognized in tort law before because they have but much like criminal harassment they had to be understood through other means like under other torts like trespass if the person that's stalking you is like on your property um trespass to person or battery which is essentially like the civil version of what you think of criminal assault is when you touch somebody um without their consent and or assault which is very confusing but Assault in civil law is essentially like threats. Uh, it's not about physical harm. <laughs> it's 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 a bit. It's kind of it's it's confusing. But or uh, another one is intentional infliction of emotional distress, which you can see how that would would, would probably apply in a lot of uh, stalking cases. So the elements of the tort are um, intent must be intentional, um, an invasion, which means there must be an invasion without lawful jurisdiction of a person's private affairs or concerns. And then similar to the criminal code, a reasonable person would consider the event as highly offensive, causing anguish, humiliation, or distress. So different in that it is, you don't have to prove that you, you feared for your safety, but it has to, but there is a reasonable person caveat. So there's an objective test that objectively that it is conduct that would be highly offensive and causing you anguish, humiliation, or distress. So you can see just based on the elements how stalking is like a really good candidate for this. And in reading the case again, because we studied it in first year towards, but I read the case, um, Jones and Sige, and, and they, they, the court cites a, a pretty obvious intimate partner stalking case. Um, and it's clearly they're, they're developing this tort with a view to these kinds of cases. I wasn't really able to find a really like emblematic intimate partner stalking case under this tort, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. And again, emblematic, maybe I shouldn't be looking for emblematic cases because every case is very different and we shouldn't be looking for perfect victims and there's a whole problem there. I'm catching myself as I'm saying this, um, but moving on, we have no time to unpack it. <laughs> Can I just say one thing? <laughs> yeah. It's, I think it's interesting when you think about trespass and emotional uh infliction of distress and then taking stalking into a cyber stalking realm that's where you can see this intrusion upon seclusion tort being especially useful because although it's definitely possible to imagine uh cyber stalking as being prosecuted under trespass like you would have a much more difficult time doing that then uh and intrusion upon seclusion really does open up the possibility of uh prosecuting cyber stalking which i think is really interesting and makes it really useful we haven't talked about cyber stalking that much but i, I would say um and we should be but i would say that this case jones and Sage, is a case of cyber stalking it's actually it's interesting the parties both worked for bmo like the bank about at different branches and both, I think they both had accounts with BMO as many employees do. And uh, Saj, the defendant, 
was in a common law relationship with Jones's ex-husband. So the defendant, which Jones is a plaintiff, the defendant looked up her ex-husband's current girlfriend's bank records. And that's the case. And that's, that was the case where they created the tort. So I think if you put a, to put a really nice like gloss over what we've just done in, in the law section, we talked about how the, the legal system deals with and probably insufficiently deals with stalking. So in the criminal context, you have a peace bond, um, which requires that you show that you fear for your safety. Same with criminal harassment, the criminal code provision requires you show that you were feared for your safety and, and how that could be potentially problematic. Um, how the law was developed with that criminal law was really developed without the voices of, of, of feminists and, and advocates, um, like women's rights advocates and um, and interested persons like women who are overwhelmingly victims of, of this kind of crime. We talked about the civil contexts where people tend to use restraining orders, especially which are especially helpful in a family law proceeding and are issued by the family court. And then also tort law and this new tort that seems to be a, a good way to deal with a lot of the kinds of stalking cases we've been talking about. I think that um, this is not technically, well, it could be legal. It could be governmental. It's not technically legal, but I do think it's like a, it's a societal problem that, you know, in Canada, there's no, like, there's no dedicated hotline to stalking. Uh, there's no, like, national organization dedicated explicitly to stalking. I mean, the, the best data that we have was collected at the end of the study was done at the end of 2014. Um, and that's, you know, that was six years ago is the last stuff that we're able to, to, to find on this kind of thing. So supports for victims just don't seem to be sufficient within the infrastructure that we have. Yeah. And I wonder too, if it's possibly because there hasn't been a necessarily high profile or it hasn't been in the news in the same way. And obviously when it was in the news in a, in a huge way in the nineties and late eighties, there was a subsequent presence of stalking within Hollywood, right? In Hollywood movies and in depictions, uh, and fictional depictions of stalking. And so let's segue into that, shall we? Yeah, so maybe that's part of it, that the way that we romanticize stalking in the media has led some to some desensitization. Let's talk about stalking as romance. It's not news that media often presents stalker behavior as harmless and even romantic. Uh, we've all seen movies and shows about a nice guy who's infatuated with a girl and will do whatever it takes to get her. And rather than viewing this behavior as obsessive and stalkerish, it's seen as evidence of his undying devotion. Mm -hmm. The other trope, which is kind of similar, is when stalking or obsessive behavior is played for laughs. Like, especially when it's a harmless nerdy guy with a crush on the popular girl. I think maybe maybe not perfectly emblematic, but the example that I want to give is from season four of Parks and Recreation, when after almost, which is a show I love, when after almost four seasons of Tom, who's played by Aziz Ansari, constantly, is constantly hitting on Ann Perkins, played by Rashida Jones, and her rejecting him, the writers decide they should start dating for reasons unbeknownst to anyone. At some point in episode 15, Tom looks to camera, because this is a mockumentary, and says the four sweetest words in the English language, you wore me down. In these cases, the female characters are usually like completely two-dimensional or 
if he ends up with a different girl, usually she's just really mean and she's like the victim. <laughs> so the victim of the stalking is actually like the villain of the show. Wait, can I also add one thing? Yeah. Just another another trope, which is like the thriller stalker, the stalker that you're a, a very afraid of. We see that portrayed a lot. The horror oh, the movie horror stalker. movie stalker, yeah. I, th- I think the biggest problem with this trope is this idea that it's someone that you don't know or someone you don't know well that's just very that's statistically unlikely based on what we talked about earlier exactly it's like a stranger stranger danger thing right like it's just not really it's not true to life it's probably going to be somebody you know if not a partner Liv what's your favorite creepy stalker in media I was actually the thing that I thought of the most was you the Netflix series which is obviously that show has this thing where even though i watch the whole thing when you say you i'm like me <laughs> like it's still like it, that still catches That's me funny. with that stupid fucking title yeah it's a weird yes isn't it? you um is that your okay your i want your favorite creepy drama stalker and then your favorite creepy rom-com stalker is this your drama stalker okay, this is my drama stalker okay continue i have other ones i want to tell more <laughs> Okay, Katie, tell me yours while I look for mine. Tell me your second example. Okay, I just realized this is not a rom-com. It's not funny. I just think of it as a mushy movie. What is it? What movie? I can't think of a rom-com one. The Notebook is a drama, right? Yeah, but it's romance, so. Okay, my my favorite... Okay, well, then I just have two dramas. Um, the my Notebook, if you remember, he essentially threatens to kill himself while hanging from a Ferris wheel trying to get her to go out with him. Do you remember that from the movie? That's true. That was that very weird. Fucked up. My other favorite creepy drama stalker is Edward Cullen. Mandatory. Has to be named. Oh, see, this is so, I, this is not embarrassing to admit, but I've never seen Twilight. Okay, I was like the most Twilight teen. No, I read the books. I think I read them all several times. But even just thinking back, like, how obsessed he clearly was with her like all this stuff he's always around like just even thinking about some of the behaviors like I can't even imagine going back and reading the book but it's just so obvious that it's like absolutely stalker behavior Joe Fox from You've Got Mail Mm. and because well he knows right like the he knows where she works and he's like going yeah and and obviously it's, it's like very nuanced as it can be right that like they have this kind of relationship over messenger that is consensual but she doesn't know it's him and then he figures it out and conceals that from her and just kind of keeps showing up where she is for a period of time there's like yeah there's lots of like shots of just like him looking at her like it's yeah it's crazy yeah because he's trying to because he knows that it's her and he knows that she hates him the the real him not the online version and so then when he finds out, he decides to manufacture encounters so that she will fall in love with him, which she does, Kelsa Priest. But I'm almost hesitant to talk about this because it's, every, if you read any article about like depictions of stalking in media or watch any video on YouTube, like there's just so many comments, lots of them by women that are like, fuck you to the author say anything is my favorite movie and I just want someone to show up on my lawn and with a boom box like it's really and I think it can be really hard if you haven't experienced it to recognize these behaviors because 
that we've been taught to see as romantic or and harmless that they're insidious like it's hard to recognize that i think but i also think the problem too is how we talk about it as a society you know when we hear people say saying like oh you know this guy keeps calling me and calling me and calling me we don't necessarily say that's so weird you should get in contact with someone you know tell people like we don't give them an action plan we say well he obviously likes you yeah or it's like he's obsessed with me I've done that (laughs) it's it's like society is a huge part to blame for this problem definitely yeah I also think like it's also I think a part of it I do think some of it is media literacy like if you're not really trained to look for these things and like when he shows up the boombox and the music swells and it ends up with them getting together like you don't see like you don't see the the stalking bit because it's because after the stalking you don't see what is more than likely to happen next is that there's like threats of physical violence or actual physical violence or you know much more increased likelihood of homicide and femicide right is that you see that they end up together and happily ever after and credits roll is that like people a lot of people like aren't media literate enough to like pull out behaviors and see them as terror like as insidious that it's more likely to end in threats of physical violence physical violence itself or murder like that it is in a happy relationship because that's left out of the film except in a horror gratuitous horror context or that even if it doesn't end in one of those things the victims are like emotionally people who do survive without physical harm are scarred and, and and face real psychological distress and sometimes ptsd from like there's the terror of being watched especially if like especially if the opinion of the movie is that it's not insidious right like you watch a movie it's like it's happening to you some people and then you don't really pick apart individual things and think about what it says about not everybody is decides that they're a culture critic in their everyday life like us so what did we learn don't don't take advice from gary marshall movie don't pull your morality from John Hughes movies. Okay, there you go. Well, I had a good quote from Tula Germanis, who says, Like sexual assault and abuse, the motivation isn't love or a broken heart, but a need for control and power. Send it there. Can't get better than that. See you next week. Thanks. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.